And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It is Tuesday. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here along with you. And uh, we do thank you for joining us. The live chat is open for today's show. A couple of little bits of uh, housekeeping here. To, uh, last night, we had, uh, we had a new edition of the H2O podcast. And for whatever reason... We had some bitrate issues, so we have re-uploaded a recorded version of that that's a little bit cleaner, if anybody's interested in that. Uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America has uh, made an announcement. They have a new communications manager that's just coming across the desk today. uh, Rebecca Gomez-Farrell has been added to the staff as their communications manager, so there is that, uh, that bit of news. And uh, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America is, uh, I think, is, is one of the affiliations maybe for our guest. Mr. David Levine joins us here this, uh, this hour. Hello, sir. Hello. Lovely to be here. Well, thanks for being here. Welcome, welcome to the program. It's been uh, a day and a half or two since uh, since we last spoke it was what worldcon 74 in 19 uh, not 19 in 1970 in 1976 no back in 2016 2016 uh, when, yes when uh, y'all were all here in Kansas City so how have how have things fared since then it's been an interesting four years <laughs> um i i i think i think i can say uh I, I can say I can say without fear of contradiction that my 2016 was probably worse than yours, um, but it's been it's been a real mixed bag since then. Um, I can I can go into details if you'd like. Well, that's that's totally up to you. This is this is your hour, so we can talk about anything uh, anything that you want. And uh, Robert in the chat, welcome. Thanks for for being here, sir. And uh, we probably will have some questions uh, from the chat throughout the throughout the show, so we'll mm-hmm. we'll incorporate those in. Uh, let okay. me let me go through the the laundry list here: two Hugo Awards, two Nebula Awards, the James White Award, the Andre Norton Award for Young Adult Science Fiction and Fantasy, uh, nominations for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, the Sturgeon Award nomination, a Locus Award nomination. Uh, you've been a contributor to George R. R. Martin's Wild Cards series. Uh, you have this is I, I I think this is probably the most interesting of them, the People's Choice Award for the best Drabblecast story of the year. What is mm-hmm. what's the Drabblecast? Uh, the Drabblecast is a podcast. Um, and they took a uh, they took a story of mine, um, which had been uh, it appeared it appeared on a on a uh, minor website uh, and was completely forgotten. Um, and then the Drabblecast, which is a fine podcast by Norm Sherman, uh, approached me, said, do you have anything that, that would make a good podcast? And I said, well, here there's this thing. It's been it was previously published and they turned it into this beautiful audio performance that was it was 
mind-blowingly wonderful. Um, and it absolutely took the, it absolutely uh, would, it, you know, it was, it, I, th I think the performance was quite deserving of the best travel cast of the year um, award, which, which I received, uh, which was a, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, it's on my mantelpiece. Um, it's, it's a, a brandy snifter on a base with an eyeball in it. Uh, so, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's um, one of the best so, kinds. Yeah. Yeah, and and for accuracy's sake, um, the the uh, the list of awards that you read off was extremely flattering, but not quite accurate. Huh? Um, I have received two Hugo nominations and two Nebula nominations. Ah, I only okay. have one Hugo and uh, and one Nebula award, and that would be the uh, Andre Norton Nebula for young adult. Okay, so, somehow I I I guess I must have misread that off the list that's on your site. So I, mm -hmm. I apologize okay. for that. We do okay. want yeah, to yeah, try to be try to be clear. Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. I am I am very very honored by the. Uh, by the award attention I have received, um, and I will not, and I will not turn down more if they should come my way. Well, and and really, the 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 number of accolades that you've received since you started, because you know the Campbell the Campbell nomination for best new writer that's two thousand four. So you mm -hmm. you actually have not been doing this very long in terms of professional publishing. I mean, I don't know we were talking to Joe Haldeman last week. He said he was writing since he was 11. So I imagine yeah. you probably started before 2003. Yeah, well, actually, um, so I was, you know, I mean, I wrote, I wrote science fiction stories in, in, you know, in school and in, in middle school and high school, just like everybody else did. Um, and all through college. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I took, I took a science fiction writing class in college, uh, I was offered through the English department and everybody said, this stuff is really good. You should try and get it published. Um, and then, uh, my first job after college was as a technical writer. And so I was basically writing science fiction for the day job. So, uh, so writing fiction was just too much like work. So I didn't write a word of fiction for 20 years. Um, and then, uh, then after I changed jobs from uh, from technical writing to software engineering, uh, I got my I got my fiction writing mojo back. So I started to be able to write fiction again. That would about that was about ninety eight. Um, in 2000, I went to Clarion West and I started selling fiction uh, basically right after that. So I sold my first story in about 2001. Uh, and then I was on the uh, Campbell ballot in 2004 and again in 2005, or was it 2003, 2004? I forget. Uh, but I hit, I, hit the Campbell, uh, I hit the Campbell ballot um, basically as soon as, as, soon as I could. Um, I would say that I spent 20 years learning how to write. Uh, as a technical writer, I learned all those skills about um, about writing to an uh, you know outlining and writing to an outlining, writing to deadline, right. um, and the grammar and the punctuation and the ergonomics uh, and managing my time and all those other things that you have to do in order to be successful as a writer. And then after 20 years of that, I started adding on the craft of writing fiction. Uh, and I don't know that I would recommend this because I didn't start selling until I was in my late 30s. Uh, and I sold my first novel when I was in my 50s. So in terms of having a meteoric success, I would not recommend this, uh, but it seems to have worked. It, it worked for me. Now, um, the, te I, the, technical, say, the technical writing aspect of it, though, there's not a whole lot of world building there. So <laughs> I, I mean, it's here's the... Here's the thing what we're what we're talking about and there's really not any kind of a of an external context to put that in. Were you did you find yourself playing catch up on the world building aspects of of fiction? 
Well, here's well. Um, actually, world building is is um, Elizabeth Bear talks about the thing that came in the box. You know, so every writer has a certain skill set that they were just sort of that, that they just they just sort of came. They didn't have to work on it, and there are other skills that they do have to work on. Um, and world building for me, world building and plot were some of the things that came in the box. But character development uh, and dialogue are the things that I have to work on consciously. Um, and so the world building, the world building equivalent in technical writing um, is, um, it's kind of like when you're writing fiction, the world that you come up with in your head is one thing. And then you have to get, bring in all the little pieces uh, that make it feel real to the reader, all those little details. Right. Um, and some of those are things that just pop up out of your imagination. And some of them are things that have to be created. You know, you have to say, okay, so this is a world in which dragons exist. So are there stoplights, that sort of thing. Um, and so, and so, you know, so it's a combination of instinct and, and, uh, and, and intellect. Um, in technical writing, the equivalent is, is that the parts of the world that you're, that you're, that, that just sort of come are the actual, the actual product that you're documenting. Uh, whereas there's another thing that is the technical writer's responsibility to create, uh, which is the user's mental model. Uh, that is to say, there's, there's the software, the actual bits and bytes, and then there's the user's idea of what's happening inside the box. And the user's idea of what's happening inside the box doesn't have to be correct. It just has to be close enough to the real thing that it leads the reader to make the appropriate conclusions about what will happen if they do a certain thing. And a big part of that is the language uh, that the software uses. You know, do you talk about a file cabinet or a folder? Uh, do you talk about a, a drawer or, or a, do you talk about a document or an item? Uh, do you talk about delete versus remove? And a lot of these uh, a lot of these subtleties of language are things where good choices of UI language can really affect the user's ability to make effective use of the product. Right. Uh, so one of the things that I did as a technical writer uh, was I would influence the product by convincing the software engineers to use different terminology uh, in the menus and dialogues. Um, and actually, as my uh, as my technical writing career went on, I became more and more of an advisor on user interface. Uh, and then I became a designer of user interface. And that was right around when I started to be able to, to write again, because I stopped writing documentation and started actually coding and designing. Um, so, um, so it's all about both technical writing and and fiction writing are about creating a certain experience in the reader's head. Um, I like to say that as a fiction writer, um, the, the reader is doing the hard work of imagination. The reader is, is making that movie in their head and making the characters move around and building all the, all the spaceships and planets and stuff like that. Your job as a fiction writer is to write a set of instructions for the reader. Uh, basically, a novel is a book of instructions for having a certain emotional experience. The reader does the hard work. It's the writer's job to be sure that those instructions are clear and in some ways not too detailed. Uh, that's one of the big differences between prose um, and, uh, and visual media is that the, uh, the reader has the responsibility and the writer's job is to give them just enough information to have the experience and then get out of the way. And that's a, that's a tough job. Yeah, and, and I would agree with you and, and expanding on that idea then is the, the subject of many a debate on just how much 
the author puts their own uh, particular set of beliefs or personality or ideas or you know the the things what they advocate in real life into their mm-hmm. fiction. There's been a lot of back and forth in that, especially with regard to the Hugos of late, mm-hmm. where they're talking about. You know, the the stories should be the stories. And I was talking to David Weber about it a long time ago, and we talked about, you know, the, the politics of the author versus the politics of the characters. And in his books, in the Honor Harrington books, it's notable that many of his characters have, you know, have vastly different political views. And mm-hmm. there's really nothing in his books to indicate which of them reflect his own political values. And I think you could expand that not necessarily just just to politics, but just in general. And you're talking when you say, you know, the author has a responsibility to give just enough and then get out of the way. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid putting too much David Levine believes this and you you must agree into that? Is that is that easy to keep that out of of the stories for you? I don't even try. Um I mean, I think I think the thing is, is that, well, some writers are capable of writing work, which the, and I'm going to, I'm going to make a distinction here between the moral stance of the work and the moral stance of the characters. Sure. You know, you can have, you can have a very well-drawn character who believes something that you completely disagree with. And then it's, to some extent, the author's choice, and to some extent, a subconscious choice, that the that the the work that that the text presents those ideas as something that are uh, either to be emulated or not, um, and some writers are much better than others at presenting uh, at writing a work that presents something uh, presents a an opinion that's different from their own opinion. Um, and some people, you know, some people are chameleons. Uh, certainly, a lot of people who write uh, tie-in fiction um, or who write uh, a lot of nonfiction uh, are very good at writing prose, which presents an opinion uh, and and presents it very well and persuasively, which which they do not agree. I am not one of those writers. Um, I wear my heart on my sleeve, um, and my the the position of the work. I believe reflects my own opinions, uh, which is not to say that every character reflects uh, reflects my opinions. That I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to put up uh, different puppets representing uh, different viewpoints. Uh, but I think you will come away from the work understanding which of these viewpoints are ones that I respect and which that are which are those that I think should be opposed. Um, I mean, my stuff, I tend to write adventure fiction. It's not, uh, it's not didactic. Uh, but I do have, I, I do have a diversity of, of genders, um, of genders and racial profiles, you know, and, and I believe that that diversity and, and friendship and kindness and uh, charity are all good things. Um, and there are plenty of other authors who wouldn't agree with that. Um, and I like to say that you can't make any conclusions about what a writer is like as a person from reading their fiction. Right. And you totally can. You know? <laughs> well, and, and you mentioned you mentioned diversity of characters and that that mm-hmm. seems to be a big bugaboo with a lot of people. The the it interpretation is. of the word diversity. 
Um, the and and I have seen. I've seen the argument on both sides in terms of what what diversity should look like in entertainment. And, you know, a, a, a common complaint that I've seen is diversity for diversity's sake. Uh, you know, right. this idea of, well, uh, this this story is not good until it has X number of black characters and it has to have certain percentage of homosexual characters and blah, blah, blah. And we check the boxes off. And that seems to be a big, uh, a, a pain point for a number of people. If, if the characters are organically a mix and it just so happens we have a black character, we have a gay character, we have whatever, then, okay, as long as it serves the story, if the characters, how, whatever, however they're constituted, may, you know, serve the story, the story, uh, at the end of the day, has to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the big, you know, splitting off point for a lot of people. Where so, well, you just you just made this character black to be black. There's nothing there's nothing inherently beneficial about the race of the character. So why is it an issue? And then I see this a lot in the marketing of things, where where the focus is the for lack of a better word, the tokenism of whatever is going on rather than selling the story. Don't sell me on the fact that you've got a black character. Sell me on the fact that you've got this really great shoot 'em up rock'em sock'em robot story. Mm-hmm. Are we marketing these books wrong? Um, if I know that's the, a broad, the broad question, but... It can be done well or badly. Um, and if the writing or the marketing engages in tokenism for the sake of tokenism, then I think it could be done better. Um, Mary Robinette Kowal says, uh, it's not adding diversity for the sake of diversity. It's subtracting homogeneity for the sake of realism. That ideally, we write our books to reflect the incredible complexity and diversity of the real world. Sure. Um, It certainly has been the case for me that anytime I've done research into anything, whether it's a physical process or something having to do with people, anytime I've looked more closely into it, I discover that it's weirder than I thought. And that's a fractal. <laughs> you keep looking closer and it keeps getting weirder. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the Arabella books, which are historical fantasy, the weirdest stuff is the stuff I found in my historical research, not the stuff I made up. Uh, the same is absolutely true for Howard Waltrip. I mean, if you read a Howard Waltrip book uh, or a story, you will come away uh, not knowing which of the pieces are fiction and which of the pieces are fact. But frankly, the weirdest stuff is the fact stuff. So when we talk about subtracting homogeneity for the sake of realism, it's not that there weren't any black people, that there weren't any women, that there weren't any gay people in the historical uh, historical, uh, models for our fantasy books. They were there. It's just that up until moderately recently, um, they were subtracted that the diversity was subtracted uh, in order to reinforce uh, the hegemon, uh, mm-hmm. the, the white male view of the world. Sure. And the fact is they were there. And in some cases, uh, we have to look really hard to find them because there have been so many generations of uh, white male historians telling us they weren't there. But the closer we look, the more we find that they were there all along and they were being significant. Uh, one of my particular bugaboos right now is uh, that recently, um, uh, there, in 
in the argument about John W. Campbell, uh, we do know from uh, from historical uh, subscription records that there were a lot of people reading those magazines in places like Harlem. So we can deduce that some of those readers may have written their own stories and sent them in, and some of those may even have been published. Um, there's very little that we know about the voluminous authors of the pulp era. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are there are hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of writers. There were you know there were an awful lot of pulps published, an awful lot of words generated over the course of the pulp era, um, and most of those authors, all we have is a name. So some of those people were almost certainly people of color. Right. Um, and I would love to find someone who is capable of doing the research and maybe find the truth, which was buried even at the time and still more buried now. But I'm, I'm convinced that there must have been authors of color even back in the 20s and 30s. They were, they were hiding at the time and their identities have been lost, but maybe we can unearth them. Would uh, would it be fair to ask the question that because, you know, a lot of people make a, a big thing out of uh, Martin Luther King's speech, you know, not by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The fact that mm -hmm. we spend so much time focused on the external packaging of a person, mm -hmm. is it possible that some of these authors may not have made a big deal out of being black or female or and 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 just said well this is my name this is the this is the story there right let the story stand for themselves there is a a, a collection i believe at the university of iowa of a lot of fanzines that somebody had collected over a you know course of some 40 or 50 years i think and there's they're, mm -hmm. they're in the process right now of digitizing all of those Mm -hmm. as part of the collection. I I think it would be interesting to go through those and see if there was any discussion of this sort uh, uh, back then, because surely if there was, you know, if there were a number of, of authors who were not white, not male, it would have been noted in some of those, perhaps, maybe. Had they known. I mean, the thing is, is that you know for sure that authors like Andre Norton and C.J. Sherry um, and, um, oh, I'm, uh, uh, C.L. Moore, uh, and, and I'm probably, I'm probably forgetting a dozen. We know for sure that there were plenty of female authors who chose male or ambiguous pseudonyms sure. so that they could get published at all. I mean, the story of James Tiptree Jr. is a, is a whole novel in itself. Um, so I think we can, we can assume that there may very well have been uh, fans of color and writers of color who simply didn't make a point of it, you know, they, because they knew that if they did, uh, surely you've seen the uh, Deep Space Nine episode, Beyond the Farthest Star, yes. you know, if they did make a point of it, they wouldn't have gotten published. But, so but you know, does, so there were plenty of there are plenty of of diversity that was hidden even by the individuals themselves sure. because they knew that they had, that they had to hide it in order to succeed in the in the hegemonic universe. Does that beg the question then that there was a difference and could there still be a difference? And I, and I, and I don't want to be you know beat a dead horse with this because I've got some other things mm -hmm. that that to to cover here. But would that hint at a difference between the publishing industry and the fandom because and i see this now 
uh, a lot of people who are who are fans and not the creators talking about you know I don't care if you're you I don't care if you're a black writer I don't care if you're a woman writer just give me a good story whereas mm-hmm. it seems to be that the industry is the uh, is the group that's making the big deal out of it. Do, do we have that much of a disconnect or is it just something that, that we see on social media because social media it, it, it is this echo chamber that augments and, and amplifies it? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, social media definitely augments and, and amplifies controversy. Uh, the algorithms actually promote that. And that's a big problem in our world right now. Um, but the... The readers who are pushing back against what they perceive as tokenism are, I mean, I mean, we can say, why can't the character just be gay, just be black, you know, as long as they're a good character. And I may write a character who is gay, just happens to be gay. And it, I might even just sort of mention it in passing. I have quite a few characters who are, who are uh, gay or bi or poly or what have you, and it's mentioned in passing, if at all. I have, I have several characters who, are, you know, who have non-standard sexualities that it doesn't wind up on the page. I just know that it's true. Um, and for many readers, they'll see, oh, okay, that character is gay. And they go on respecting the character as the author intended. Right. But there are other readers who will see even a mention of homosexuality and go, oh, my God, why are you shoving the gay in my face? <laughs> because it violates their expectations, you know, and that's on them. You know, so many people will see and decry tokenism when the character is just being themselves. You know, so it's if you expect if you expect homogeneity, then any diversity will appear to you to be diversity for the sake of diversity, which is where I think we're getting a lot of this pushback, is people who have grown up with the idea that, of course, the heroes of my stories will all be white males, will refuse to accept even a very realistic level of diversity, saying, oh, no, there were no black people in those in those medieval castles, See, when there I, totally were. I. I have to, and yeah, I, I have to uh, say that I have not seen that extreme of a reaction. Is oh, it's just a mention, and and people freak out like you're like you're characterizing it. It mm-hmm. seems to be the most of the complaints that I've seen have been, you know, and and again, this could go back to the marketing of the thing rather than the actual thing itself, because we saw you know with the with the marketing of say Captain Marvel, for example. You know, making it the feminist message as opposed to making it another superhero movie. The, the and it could very well be that that the PR surrounding a thing makes a big deal out of something that when you get into the story is not a big deal. But I haven't I haven't really seen anybody you know complaining about the fact that there is X type of character in the story it's what's done with the character in the story and the and the fact that being black being gay whatever becomes the key to everything about the story and that again that could be the marketing of it rather than the 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 actual story itself Mm -hmm. well i've seen plenty of uh, plenty of pushback to what i consider to be uh characters who are just being themselves I've seen plenty of pushback to it as being tokenism. Yeah. Um, I've seen I've seen plenty of. I mean, you look at you look at things like the people that uh, that 
uh, piled on Black Panther and Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman, even before they came out, they were downvoting it on the on the rating sites. You know, there's plenty of people who were down on something just because of who the character is without even without even reading it or viewing it and giving it a chance to prove itself. Well, let me ask you this. Robert is making some points here about about the diversity in the Europeans and and, and you know, among Japanese and Koreans and all of that. Where you have, for example, uh, he says here, white is not homogeneity either. You have the Scotch, you have the English, you have Westphalia, Italian, Castilian, Icelandic. There's a lot of diversity within white. Oh and, yeah, and the whites and, and, and the the Italians and and the Italians and the Irish were not considered white when they first came to the U.S. So so if someone was to do a story about diversity among whites, that would not get the same reception as diversity in general. Would, would they not? In the current political context, it would not. Yeah. You know, okay. just like um, there was, I think, a time when doing a uh, doing a race swapped or gender swapped story that like, uh, you know, oh, look, this is a this is a society in which the black people are on top and the white people are enslaved. Right. I think there was a time in the 40s or 50s when that would have been an interesting comment. But we're past that. You know, we need a more we need a more nuanced view right. of the differences between races. That reminds me there was a movie. Oh, and I can't remember the title of it. It was John, Travol John Travolta and Harry, Harry Belafonte in that very kind of story in a movie that was, I think, what, in the 90s? When, would, when did that come out? I have to, I'd have to look that up. Um, Don't recall it. But it was basically the, the race flip where mm -hmm. uh, the, the blacks were in the position of privilege and the whites were the oppressed race. And, and that whole thing was just kind of basically flipped it on its ear. Um, and I think you can tell those stories, uh, but I think the discussion that surrounds, like you're saying, in the current culture and the cu current climate, we've got so much with the cancel culture and the, oh, how dare you say that? How dare you offend me? Um, and, and there is no dialogue. There is no discussion. There is, I'm right and you need to agree with me or we're going to get you fired and canceled and unpublished and unpersoned. Do you do you see a whole lot of that? And is there an end to that coming at some point? Do you think how do we get out of the cancel culture mentality that we're stuck in now? Um, I'm going to give you two separate answers to that one. Okay. Uh, the big problem right now is we don't even agree on what a fact is. You know, we don't have a we don't have a society a societal level agreement anymore on what our principles are. Uh, you know, we can't even agree that uh, preventing disease or not putting, uh, th that preventing preventing disease or, or not beating people up on the street for no reason or not putting children in cages are bad things. Um, if we don't have a, if we don't, if we can't agree as a society on, on what's good and what's bad, then it's going to be really tough to take that discussion to the next step of how shall we run a just society. Right. Um, and then cancel culture, you know, the, the, the phrase cancel culture wouldn't be a thing if those supposedly canceled people weren't still making plenty of noise and being heard. You know, all those people that are railing about how they've been canceled, they still have a perfectly huge platform. Well, and, and I think it's not necessarily the the result of, you know, being a target. Like you say, you know, a lot of them still have a voice. They still have a platform. But it's the, it's the act of trying to cancel someone. We're not having discussions now. We just want to shut you down. 
it's that right it's that mentality that i think is probably uh some of the most harmful in terms of having any kind of a discussion on culture uh, Mazerus in the chat says there isn't even any attempt to simply broadly define what hate speech covers for example where you have um you know everybody has a different perception and a different definition of what is just what should be acceptable what should be right there it, there doesn't seem to be any meeting in the middle i mean we saw this in in the hugos when when the puppy campaigns were going on there there was all of this back and forth neener 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 but nobody that i saw wanted to sit down and say okay let's actually have conversations about this it was you know you're bad, you're bad, no, you're bad, no, you're bad. No. And, and this He-Man, Woman-Haters Club mentality, us versus them. And I look at the numbers of the votes for Hugos, and, you know, and I've seen comments, you know, the Hugo Award used to be this this very preeminent, the Oscar of, of science fiction literature. Mm -hmm. And a number of people have said, now I look and I see this is an Oscar winner, and I know to stay away from it. How do we? How did? How do we get away from that? How do we get get out of that? I don't want to have anything to do with this because it's a Hugo, or because it's you know fill in whatever blank on the criteria is for staying away from something because there is no agreement anymore. It's just us versus them. Well, it's hard to have a reasoned discussion with somebody who refuses to accept you as a human being. Um, I see that the the reason we have I, I mean I, I I it goes back to Newt Gingrich to me Newt Gingrich and Ronald Reagan uh, were the people who started declaring uh, the de declaring the people who disagreed with them politically as being non-humans um, to uh, you know Newt Gingrich was the one with the contract of America the contract on America as I called it um, the contract with America and a new way of dealing with the political opposition of dehumanizing and demonizing uh, the 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 alternative we you know we we say why can't we go back to times when people would have polite disagreements um, and I really do believe it's the right wing um, that stopped disagreeing politely um, and it is now the right wing who is continuing to say you aren't really a human being your voice does not deserve to be considered it's my way or the highway and when they have when they have the power when they hold the levers of power they will absolutely enforce that it's one of the reasons it's so difficult to fight back against them. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna take a little bit of an exception to that because uh, you look at what's going on in and and not to not to get too deep in the weeds here because we could very easily do that. But you look at what's going mm -hmm. on in in places like Baltimore, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York, and all of the all of the violence, all of the protests, all of the riots, and the complaints about. Systemic racism, for example, mm -hmm. are in places where you, if you if you eliminate the federal level at the local level, these places have been run by the Democrat Party for decades. Would that not create the question of whether or not if this systemic racism exists, would that not be the responsibility of the party that's been running these municipalities for you know, since the sixties, does that not Portland, factor? Oregon. Does that not factor I into live, it? I live in Portland, Oregon. 
I noticed that you use air quotes around the term systemic racism. Systemic racism is there. Oregon is a systemically racist state. It was founded as a sundown state. Black people were explicitly excluded from it. That was only 150 years ago. There's an awful lot of racism in the system, which despite the fact that the Democrats have been in charge of the city government in Portland, does not mean that there is not systemic racism in the system. There's a ton of systemic racism in the system, and even Democrats recognize this. The violence that you've been seeing on TV in Portland has been instigated by the police. I have plenty of friends who've been, down, uh, who, who've been downtown for the protests. The protests are peaceful. It's the police that have been firing the tear gas. If you look even at the even at the DHS director Wolf's statements about why the feds had to go into police had to go into Portland talking about talking about the horrific violence if you look at the lists of things that he used to justify it it was all graffiti it was vandalism people were spray painting the outside of the federal building and now the cops are lobbing tear gas at them lobbing rubber bullets at them uh, lobbing flashbangs at them there have been many many peaceful protesters who have been injured nobody's been killed yet but there's been there there have been i mean you've got you've got anonymous vans with anonymous federal anonymous people claiming to be federal agents taking people off the street the violence in portland is because of the police and the portland police have an extremely racist history so we're fighting against racism and you can't blame the the quote democrat party unquote for the racism that exists in this country of which portland is a part well and and it it's not my intent to blame any particular party because i think racism exists at the individual level at, at the at the beginning of everything if and and my use of air quotes around systemic racism is really just to go to call back to so many people who say that this is the problem. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but if you have people like like in the Chaz uh, section in in Seattle, for example, where mm -hmm. the where the police were effectively blocked from going in, we don't mm -hmm. want you here. You had uh, what two murders? You had several shootings, and it didn't have anything to do with the police presence being there because they weren't there. Um, I, I, I have, I have a tough time believing that this is all the police's fault. You know, if the federal government has a responsibility to defend and protect federal property as, as far as a jurisdictional question, you know, graffiti, vandalism, if you have criminal activity of any sort, whether it's civil unrest or you're, or you're throwing Molotov cocktails, I would think that it's the responsibility of law enforcement to stop that kind of activity. Wouldn't you agree? I do not agree that it's I do not agree that the level of the level of response has been appropriate to the threat. Consider that when you talk about when you hear about riots, mm -hmm. remember that the police are allowed to the police are allowed to do certain things after a declaration of riot, after a declaration that something is an unlawful assembly. The police are permitted to declare a riot if they observe any unlawful activity or, to be precise, observe any activity which they declare unlawful. So uh, one of the things that happened night after night after night after night in Portland is they put up a fence around the federal building. Right. If anybody touched the fence, and we're talking about, about the, the, the wall of moms coming up and putting flowers in the fence – 
that was considered trespassing, therefore a violation of law, therefore they were able to declare an unlawful assembly and use whatever, uh, whatever force they deemed necessary in order, to, in order to break it up. So we have moms going up and putting flowers in the fence and being met with tear gas, uh, flashbangs, and rubber bullets. You know, the escalation and violence in response to something that I think is technically unlawful, if indeed it is unlawful at all, is entirely disproportionate. Well, and this is to prevent graffiti on one building downtown. Well, you have there's been no there's been no looting. There's been no okay. There was there was some looting on the first on the first nights of the of the George Floyd protests. Right. But there haven't been Molotov cocktails. There hasn't been burning. Uh, and this is all around just two blocks downtown. David, I've seen video of of uh, and may not maybe not necessarily in Portland, but I've seen cars on fire. I've seen buildings on fire. Uncle Uncle Hugo's the bookstore in Minneapolis was burned to the ground. As part of this kind of activity, mm -hmm. is that not is is that not something that should be stopped? I mean, what what at what point do we decide that this kind of behavior is not productive to to the betterment of society? Where does it end? We've gone 60, well 60 plus days, sixty plus days with people getting beaten. I mean, you, they dragged a guy out of his by cops. No, no, no. Wait, there's video of this guy getting dragged out of his car, beaten, uh, unconscious, and there's there aren't any cops around. It's the people that are that are in in the midst of these protests that are committing at least some of this violence. Where do we say enough is enough? We're trying to say enough is enough. We are trying to stop the violence. Um, we have said, you know, we have said that the cops are no longer allowed to use tear gas, and they keep doing it. Uh, you can you can say that you've seen people dragged out of their cars by protesters. I haven't seen that. I can't. I, I can't can speak you, to the truth. Here. I can send you a link to the video. I mean, there's there's stuff like that all over. You know, Facebook, Twitter, and you know, And granted, social media being social media. Everything is out of context to a point, but once the context mm -hmm. is put into it, the story changes rather drastically in some cases. So social context media to me, it, it seems like, you know, social media is counterproductive to having any kind of a discussion about it, this kind of thing anyway. This is true. But this is mm -hmm. what we're stuck with. As I said, the big problem in this society right now is we don't agree on what's good and true. Right. You know, and and the context that that the reader brings uh, to a piece of information is really important in determining how they perceive it. Yeah. Um, and I've definitely seen that different people come away from the same news items with entirely different ideas about who started it, who's at fault, whether it should have been started in the first place. Um, one thing that we can say for sure is that protests you've got to inconvenience people before you can make them pay attention at all. And it's unfortunate that it's gotten to that point, but it has. And, and it didn't, you know, it didn't happen this year and it didn't happen four years ago. The societal pressures that have been leading to this violence have been building up for decades. And sometimes the needle swings this way and sometimes the needle swings that way. Right, right now, the needle is swinging both ways <laughs> is that we've got, we've got a lot, we, we're extremely divided as a society. Uh, I won't say that this is a good thing, um, but right now we've got um, 
you, you, I mean, you look at the, you look at the spectrum uh, of news. There's this great chart that you can find all over the place showing the, um, you, you know, left, left, right, right. Uh, truth made up. Yep. Um, yeah. You, you, and so, you know, depending on who you choose to accept as news sources, you're going to wind up with a completely different view of the world and will proceed to different conclusions and take different actions. You know, we need to we need a Walter Cronkite. We need somebody that everybody in the country can agree is is, you, you know, this is this is true. This is right. This is important. And we're a long way from getting to that point. I mean, even even after the election, you know, even after we have we have whoever is president, whoever is going to be president in 2021, yeah. the the tension and the and the dissension uh, will continue because you've got about 40 percent of the people on either side of the line who are pulling real hard. Um, and I believe that it's the it's the right that has declared war on the people who don't agree with them. Um, if you look at if you look at the the history, you look at Newt Gingrich, and um, and and Ronald Reagan, um, and uh, I mean I mean even even people like John like John McCain and Bob Dole, you know, were a lot more conciliatory uh, toward people who disagreed with them uh, than our current crop of right wingers. Um, that there are there are charts that show how Congress, if you look at the decisions of individual members of Congress, mm -hmm. uh, it used to be that the, that you had a couple of red and blue red and blue ovals that overlapped like this, and now they're more like this. Right. That that our institutions as well as our individuals have become much more radicalized and and much more doctrinaire, and I really do believe that it's the right that has done that over the past forty years. Well, and and I've seen you know contrary to that, I've seen uh, the the charts, and I, I don't want to say it was Rasmussen. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it is. Tim Poole was talking about this not too long ago. The charts of right versus left in terms of the bell curves for the center of the right and the center of the left. And mm -hmm. the center of the right over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so seems to have shifted slightly to the right. And the center of the left seems to have shifted radically to the left. So you have, you know, a more socialist view of of things and, and so it's all comparative i mean that chart you were talking about well, for, for the and the media, thing is is that what is is that what you just said about showing the bell curves the bell curves that i've been the equivalent bell curves that i've been seeing on my news show that the show that the the the, the left is still pretty close to the center and the right has gone way off to way off to the to to infinity so it's all now, subjective at, i mean well see the thing is is that i think there is truth and 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 Unfortunately, we we disagree we disagree over what the truth is, but certainly if you compare the American definitions of left left and right with the definitions of left and right that are used in other parts of the world, you know, uh, you know, American Democrats would be considered right wingers in most of Europe. Right. You know, our Democrats are very much more centrist, and our right wingers, you know, mains there's there's stuff on the right like QAnon which is absolutely wacko and is considered practically mainstream on the right these days. I'm not sure it would be considered mainstream, but I, I have seen some, I have seen some things in the QAnon, the, the QAnon threads that, that seem a little bit um, extreme, I guess you could say. Now, let me ask you this. There, to bring are, it back to there are Republican candidates. There are Republican actual nominees of members of a major political power, uh, members of a major political party who actually espouse um, that Hillary Clinton is a baby-eating pedophile. 
<laughs> well, not to speak to that, but let me let me let me swing this back around because you have been teaching workshops as well. Mm-hmm. The the people that are coming in, um, new new writers, people who are looking for uh, ways to incorporate, because science fiction, in general, has has had the the futurism, the speculative fiction, what's going to happen next. I have made the point uh, in a couple of places that we are currently living at the intersection between 1984, Animal Farm, Fahrenheit 451, A Brave New World. And that's not necessarily a good thing. But as technology has caught up to science fiction and and as our culture has basically outstripped what we can imagine... Where can science fiction go from here to give us something other than a dystopian future viewpoint? Has that come up? What are the issues that some of your your writing students are running into as far as how do I create a future that's not this? Well, yeah, coming up coming up with a with a realistic, plausible future which isn't a dystopia uh, right now is a real challenge, and. What I can say about, I mean, I, I, okay, you've, you've, you're kind of, you're kind of asking two different questions here. Um, the, the need to show, the need to show a way out of this current nasty situation is something that existed during the Cold War, the pollution issue, the population crisis. Um, there has been, you know, I mean, I mean, I think, I think our current situation is a lot less apocalyptic. Um, than the than the than uh, the very serious threat of nuclear of nuclear annihilation, which I grew up with. Right. Um, so you know, so we've been dealing with trying to fend off the apocalypse um, in a lot of different ways for uh, for the entire length of the field of, of science fiction. Um, so most of the most interesting works do not show the utopia. They show the worst possible possible outcome, or with the idea of of um, you know let's take a look at this thing so we don't wind up there. You know, 1984 is not a utopia. Um, Brave new Brave New World, um, uh, Farnham's Freehold. Um, there's a there's a short story called Lot, which was made into a movie called Panic at Year Zero. Very representative of the idea of what a nuclear holocaust and the immediate post Holocaust might look like. You know, we uh, you know Fahrenheit 451 and um, and Doctor Strange Love, and most generally speaking, science fiction in the 20th and 21st centuries is all about showing the worst that might happen in an effort to get people to think about maybe we can avoid that. Uh, Utopias, the problem with the utopia, the problem with writing a utopia is it's difficult to make it exciting if things are going well. Right. Um, And even uh, Ian Banks, who came up with his utopian culture, um, his stories take place on the edges of the culture um, where the culture is uh, impinging on, on other nearby civilizations and having conflict there. That the center of the culture where everything is happy uh, and there are plenty of resources, uh, it's not an interesting place to write, uh, to write stories. I, so, I remember um, making yeah. a note when, uh, when Star Trek The Next Generation came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea, Roddenberry didn't want um, the crew, he wanted the crew to all be able to get along. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I had noted early on, uh, the, the biggest difference between uh, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, for example, 
is that in Deep Space Nine, your lead characters don't always agree. They don't always get along. And that is a good mm -hmm. source of conflict for story. Yeah, and I think it makes a more interesting story. It hobbles the next generation because all of the conflict comes from outside. It comes from an ambassador. Mm -hmm. It comes from an alien race. It comes from some other mm -hmm. antagonist. It, you know, the the conflict like you're talking about that doesn't necessarily need to be there as part of a story. Uh, but is there still a place? You know, you talk about you know we have to show the worst in order to to give us an, uh, some idea. Is is there a room for the hopeful story? Is there room for the adventure stories of the pulps? Or oh, do yeah. we, well, do I we myself... still have to have to have a point to the story? A moral um, to the story. I think all stories have a point, um, but you can hammer it or you can just sort of slip it in. Um, I think, I, you know, my stories, I think, I think that I write light adventure. You know, you know I, I, try to write, I try to write stories that are entertaining, which is not to say that they don't have an opinion. Um, that they don't that they don't portray a world which is in some way uh, or at least even if the situation is difficult I try to write characters who are trying to do the right thing um, as I as I define the right thing and so I think that the Arabella books are a they're they're fairly lightweight adventure but at the same time they do raise issues of diversity and gender and colonization and I may or not may or may not have been as successful uh, certainly, I know that I've been criticized uh, for my portrayal of, of uh, colonization, um, and all I can do is all I can do is is listen and try to do better next time. Um, now, when you do you're, you're when you asking, do research, though, when you do research into stuff like that, how much mm -hmm. how deep of a dive can you take when you're working on a book? Because I mean, there's only so much that you can do. You've got to get the book written. Mm -hmm. How thorough is is your research? How much do you how much time do you put into that? If it's something especially that you don't know anything about, but like you said, you know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction when it when it comes Absolutely. to historical stuff. How much of that goes into to prepping for a book? Um, my process is generally that I'll take anything from uh, from for for a novel sized project. I will generally take months and sometimes as much as a year or more um, doing doing research um, and what I call noodling, um, just sort of just sort of writing out ideas for plot and character and setting and and changing my mind a lot. Um, and um, and then so once I've got the basic idea, I may start drafting. And then stop drafting for a day or a week while I do a deep dive on some particular thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm very much a fan of just-in-time research. Uh, I learn enough to get myself started, and then as I bump into things that I don't know, that I research them. Because if you try and cram the entire historical period or whatever it is that you're working on, if you try and cram it all into your head when you start, I think you'll wind up wasting a lot of time. I mean, it's not completely wasted because any learning is valuable, but um, but I certainly find that um, that I myself, as long as you know just a little bit more uh, than the reader uh, about what's going on in the book at the uh, what's about what's going on in the universe of the book, that's good enough. Uh, you can only fake it so far. <laughs> now, uh, sometimes you have to get. Sometimes you have to talk to a person or or read a whole book right. or or do some or, or or go to a place and do some research. Uh, but generally. You know, I think that I can get away with Wikipedia level research on a lot of things, and it's sometimes gotten me in trouble. 
Now, uh, you've spent a couple of weeks at the Mars Desert Research Station, I mm-hmm. understand. And I've got their website mm-hmm. called up here so people can see. Is Now, this is in Utah. Was this mm-hmm. was this research for a story, or is this something you just decided to go do and and spend a couple of weeks out there? What was what was this about? Um, this was a bullet list. Uh, sorry, a um, a bucket list item for me. Uh, I posted something uh, toward the end of uh, wow, it was two thousand nine, so so it was quite a while ago now. Uh, I posted my my space related bucket list. Um, and number one on the list was was an actual trip to the International Space Station, uh, and then a zero gravity flight, and then a stay at the at at that at that simulated Mars base that I know exists in Utah. Okay, that was that was my level of that was my level of knowledge of it was was I know that this thing exists and wouldn't that be cool? Friend of mine commented on on my Facebook saying, "Hey, I know people at the Mars Society. I could put you in touch." So he did. He put me in touch, uh, and I contacted them, and they said, "Well, we've already established all of our crews for the next research station, or next research season, but we sometimes have last-minute openings. So go ahead and put in an application." So I put in an application, and then two weeks later, they say, "Hey, we've had a last-minute opening. Can you go to Utah for two weeks?" In two weeks, okay. So this was you know, this was at the end of December, and the and and the and and I had to I had to go to Utah in the beginning of January, and I was I was retired already at this time, so I said, uh, "Why, yes, I actually can." So I so I bought all the necessary camping equipment, uh, and I got my plane ticket, and I went out, and I spent two weeks at the simulated Mars base with five people that I had never met before, um, and I had to do this because somebody had dropped out. Um, so it was. It was something that I had wanted to do just based on the general idea that it existed. Right. It wasn't research for a specific story, but I did get a couple of specific stories out of it. Uh, I have a story called Citizen Astronaut, uh, which was published in Analog, uh, is based on that experience. Uh, and I have a novel called The Loneliest Girl on Mars, uh, which I wrote and which I trunked back in 2011 or so, um, which and which is now actually, uh, actually in submission again, um, that I, uh, I have... I have basically not been able to write since the pandemic came down. And one of the things that I'm doing to work my way up to drafting again is I'm taking some old projects and brushing them up and sending them out on submission. So what are you currently working on now? I call it the cursed work in progress. Um, <laughs> it is uh, The working title is the Kuiper Belt job. I describe it as a cross between Leverage and Firefly in the universe of the Expanse. Uh, this takes place in an inhabited and pretty thoroughly, pretty thoroughly, uh, pretty thoroughly uh, colonized solar system. Um, it it has uh, there's tension between Earth, Mars, and the Belt, but it's not as it's not the 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 focus of the book is not about the political tensions as it is in the Expanse. It's more about a Firefly-style group of uh, of petty thieves uh, who are making their way uh, making their way across the solar system, trying to make money. But as in Leverage, uh, they wind up having to fix something that turns out to be much bigger than it looked at first. Um, so I call it the cursed work in progress because uh, after I finished the Arabella books, it took me years before I could write anything else. So I spent I spent at least a year, maybe two or three years, uh, just noodling on this project. And I finally said, okay, you, you know, it's time to actually really uh, really put the metal uh, put put the pedal to the metal and and the rubber to the road and actually start drafting on this thing. Now I signed up for a uh, for a novel writing workshop uh, to to 
to uh, help myself get going on it. And I was doing really well. I wrote about 20, 30, 40,000 words. And then I wound up in the hospital with an intestinal blockage and I couldn't write again for another few months. So then I started going again and then the pandemic hit. So now I'm, I'm really afraid that if I pick up this work, I, if I pick up this work and start writing it again, something horrible will happen. Uh, like like the uh, like the flaming tornadoes that are out west, maybe something. Yes, flaming tornadoes uh, um, uh, and and uh, uh, and and murder hornets. <laughs> and, oh. So this is all I, I, your I, fault, David. It's yeah. yes, yes, it's true. It's right. me. It's like washing the car to make it rain. Now I do notice that you're active still on your blog on your website, DavidDLevine.com. We've posted that up here, and and is you mentioned contributing? You you talked about the you know we've talked about wild cards a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, are you? interested are you having any discussions with anybody about doing any kind of tie-in fiction or do you want to stay in your own sandbox um wild cards is a special case uh because it's not exactly tie-in fiction we are all the members of the consortium are co-creating the world of wild cards and actually i have a pitch in for a story uh for for an upcoming volume so we'll see whether or not that one's accepted um the process at wild cards is, is when a new book comes along uh, all the members of the consortium are invited to pitch an idea um and actually we have a couple of books coming out and i pitched one and it wasn't accepted i've had i think i'm about one I, I think about one out of three of my pitches is accepted. So it's not a, it's not a, a sure thing, but I, I, feel, I feel good about this one. So we'll see whether it's accepted. Um, but uh, as far as like, like writing uh, Star Wars tie-in fiction or anything like that, um, I think that writing tie-in fiction is something that you should do because you really, 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 really love the property. Um, and I always considered that writing tie-in fiction is an awful lot like technical writing in that I'm doing the work, but not the creation. Sure. Um, and, or at least, at least not the big part of the creation. And I always said uh, that if I was going to write, if I was going to write in a universe other than the one that I'd made up, um, I could go back to technical writing and then get benefits. Uh, so I've never been strongly tempted to write tie-in fiction. I never even wrote fanfic. Yeah. Uh, I know that an awful lot of writers started out by writing fanfic. Um, and, uh, and I, I just never did. It's not, it's not my thing. All right. Well, the website, we'll pull that up here real quick. It is DavidDLevine.com. And mm -hmm. you are on, it looks like pretty much all the social medias that's out there. I see you even still have a Tumblr, uh, which, yes, I do. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> My Tumblr basically, uh, only I, I get, uh, basically, uh, the stuff that goes onto Tumblr is a copy of whatever goes to my blog and to Instagram. I don't post. I don't post uh, original concept to tum uh, original content to Tumblr. But I'm David D. Levine on on Tumblr and on Instagram and on uh, and on Twitter and even on even on Facebook. I am David D. Levine, but it's all spelled out. It's not. It's not squished right. together in one word. All right. Well, David D. Levine, thank you very much for your time, sir. I really appreciate you coming on and talking with us. Thank you very much. And uh, at some point in the future, we need to have you back when uh, when the cursed work in progress gets a little bit l less in progress and more in publication, and and we'll have some conversations. Maybe we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll see you at Discon. Oh, that would be lovely. Is that yeah? That's that's uh, next. Washington D.C. next year, right? 
discount free. Yes, I certainly hope. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've been to a couple of conventions at that hotel before, and I'm very excited to go back there. It's a lovely hotel in a great location. And, and the Washington, D.C. fans will put on a good show, I'm sure. Yeah. So I hope, I hope that we will all see each other at the WorldCon. Let's hope so. And uh, okay. we do appreciate you being on here. And a couple of uh, real quick housekeeping items. Uh, those of you who are interested in us doing more of these types of conversations, uh, of course, uh, we do appreciate a thumbs up and a share if uh, you are so inclined. Comments, uh, uh, if you want to let us know what you think. And if you would like to support the channel in a financial way, we have a Subscribestar account, and we do have a discount code over at SuperheroStuff.com. When you use the promo code SciFi for me 10 you get 10% off your order. And that's going to do it for us. Coming up tonight at 8 o'clock, we will have the latest Star Trek and Orville news on Triple Bites. And then later on this week, a Doctor Who discussion on a new Tartar sauce. And uh, as always, of course, uh, at, at 6.30 Central, we'll have the latest Comic-Con schedule updates. And uh, uh, you should have your notifications turned on because uh, YouTube might let you know when we put up new content. So uh, there we go. Thanks very much for watching. Those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, we do broadcast this live on our YouTube channel Monday through Thursday at noon Central. We do invite you to join us there. Thank you very much for being here, folks. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.